Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Rowena Christmas, a GP in the Wye Valley on the Welsh-English border and chair of the Royal College of GPs in Wales. Rowena's been heavily involved in the college's work over the past couple of years on relationship-based care or continuity of care. And in this conversation, she explains why she feels this is so important in general practice and how GPs and practices can embed it in the way that they work. We also talk about recruitment and retention of GPs and what's happening on that in Wales, the impact recent NHS pressures have had on GPs and her priorities over the coming year as chair of the college in Wales. So I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Rowena Christmas, who's a GP partner in the Wye Valley in Wales, where she's worked for 22 years and also chair of the Royal College of GPs in Wales and vice chair of the Welsh Medical Committee, which advises the government in Wales on matters related to health. Rowena is a real advocate of the importance of primary care and the value of continuity of care to both patients and doctors. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rowena. Oh, thanks, Emma. It's a real, real delight to be joining you. First of all, it's always good to start this question. Why did you decide to become a GP? That's a good question. And and there's always lots of lots of strands to, to anything like that. And um, when I, when I was a sixth former trying to get work experience, you know, even back in my day, it was quite hard to get into medical school. I spent a, a fantastic week with my own GP. And even back then, I recognized the stories that you get in, in primary care are, are probably the best stories you're going to get. You know, it's just a fascinating wealth of social history. But for a while then, I, I sort of moved away from general practice. And, and I think ambitious medical students often are turned away from, from primary care a little bit. Consultants in, in hospitals often sort of promote their own specialities. So I did pediatrics for a bit and loved that. But to be honest, General practice is a very, very family-friendly speciality. You know, I've, I've got two sons. I've never missed a sports day. I've never missed a, a morning assembly. I've seen all my patients, but you can just fit it around family life. And, and that just worked very well for me. And, and I've never regretted it. You know, the challenge is there every day. I, I have students in with me and just laugh every surgery saying, you're, you're never going to get bored with this. It's so, so interesting and challenging. So, yeah, lots of reasons, but I've, I've never regretted it at all. You always seem, when I've seen you speak about things, be really, really positive about general practice, even though we're in a really difficult time at the minute. I feel very worried about the way things are. And I, I talk, you know, in, in my role as chair, I talk to lots of colleagues who are desperately struggling. I, I, as an appraiser, I talk to GPs who are burnt out and, and exhausted. So I'm not blind to the pressures. But I do feel positive. I, I mean, it's an amazing job. It's a well-remunerated job. It's a flexible job. I think we can turn it around. So yeah, I recognize I'm, I'm super positive about it, but it's not as though I'm not aware of the pressures. You know, in my 22 years as a partner, I've been last person standing twice. That's incredibly stressful emotionally. You feel very worried financially. And, and you know, just in terms of logistics, you are working crazy hours. My surgery days are almost always 13 hours long. And then I'm still logging in and doing a bit more in the evening. Yeah, I recognize it's, it's a hugely exhausting job, but it is also a wonderful job. You practice in quite a rural area, don't you? And you've been there for a, for quite a long time in the same practice. What are some of the challenges that rural GPs in particular face? 
I've got particular challenges. We're a split psych surgery, so two same-sized buildings on either side of the River Wye, which means that our St. Breville surgery is in England and our, our Trellick surgery is in Wales, which really does add to the complexity of everything that we're doing. I don't think there's a more beautiful area in the UK. I'm sure people are challenged beyond that, but it's spectacular. You know, the river, the forests, the hills, there are challenges, you know, the infrastructure for patients is very poor. So if they haven't got a car, the bus does not fit well with surgery times, for instance. Our geography is big. You know, sometimes you'll have a home visit and, and it's 50 minutes away or, you know, round trip of an hour. And that's really, really stressful in, in days that are incredibly busy. I think we get more weather in the country, which sounds a bit crazy, but, you know, we, we often have one Land Rover that's sort of going around through the floods or the snow, trying to pick up as many staff as we can to get us in. And once we're all in, then, then we realise there's nothing to do because the poor patients can't get in to see us. And my husband's taken me on visits in the tractor before now, you know, which <laughs> you know, I laugh about, but it is fun and it is quite exciting. It, it makes it a great job. It's a long way for our patients to go to hospitals, which means over and above lots of other reasons why they don't particularly want to go to hospital at the moment. Just the distance is difficult. One of the things that you've been very involved in with the college recently over the last year or so has been the work that they've been doing around continuity of care and relationship-based care, as it's been termed. I imagine that's really important where you practice in quite a rural community where, like you say, you're a long way away from hospitals and things. Can you explain a bit about why you believe continuity of care is so important? You know, studies have shown it's safer medicine, it's better medicine, and it's it's better for our patients, but it's also better for the doctors and the nurses. For me, I talk a lot about why general practice is wonderful, and I think actually it's that relationship-based care that is the heart of why it's such a magical job. You've got more empathy, perhaps, between your patients. They, they trust us more. If somebody has looked after your mum when she was dying and did it with kindness and care and compassion, that creates a trust that you just can't replicate in any other way. And, you know, lots of small encounters as well as huge encounters like that just build up to foster this sort of almost a, a two-way sense of responsibility. So I'll have patients that I, I'll say, oh, I'll come and see you because I know they haven't got any transport and they're, they're really sounding poorly. And then the receptionist to get a call back 10 minutes later from the patient's neighbour saying, oh, she wouldn't let Dr. Christmas come because she knows how busy she is, so I'm going to bring her in. And, you know, stuff that you, you wouldn't expect at all. And, and sometimes you're sort of fighting patients to do more for them rather than the other way. It, it just becomes a complete joy, really. There's a study by a team led by Sandvik, which shows that patients who've been registered with their GP for two years or more have a 30% lower risk of using out-of-hours service, 30% less likely to be admitted to hospital as an emergency. And the most extraordinary figure of all is that they have a 20% less likely chance of dying over the next 12 months than patients who've been registered with their GP for a year or less. It really does seem to make a difference. And, and that benefit increases the longer you've been with your GP. We know from statistics that that sort of implies that there is a causal relationship there. We don't really know why, but we suspect it's something to do with that trust, making patients more likely to follow advice or take their medication or listen to safety netting and get back in touch with you if they're getting worse. They might be more likely to attend screening. All these really positive things that mean people 
have healthier lives. And it just makes us enjoy our job more. There's a lower risk of mistakes being made if you know your patients better. So all sorts of, you know, I could keep going on for ages about all all the benefits of it. We need to sort of try and keep pushing forward to, to make it important. The college produced a document last year about the importance of relationship based care, which talked about some of those things that you were discussing there and what it would like to see happen, I guess, to really embed it in practice across all four countries. One of the things it talks about is sort of incentivizing continuative care. So like practices are, are really pushed towards providing continuity. I mean, how do you think that could work? It's difficult. And that's a great paper. If anyone wants to read it, it's, it's well worth a look. Mm. There's lots of evidence in there. We have quality and outcomes frameworks, you know, lots of various things that sort of dictate how we're paid. If you could pop continuity in there, I would love to see that. How we do it, I'm not quite sure. There's other ways that you can you can sort of incentivize continuity. It's, it's very, very difficult for practices to recruit new GPs and, and, and other team members. Whereas our practice, which has very good continuity of care, has managed to recruit two partners and two salaried doctors in the last two years. I, I you know, still count my blessings all the time. But the reason those doctors joined us was because they loved our model. You know, they loved the, the continuity we offer and the fact that they were going to get a, a patient list that they would get to know very well and no regrets from anyone. They feel it's been, you know, because it's quite a bold move to change practices, but they're all very happy in that environment. So that's a good incentive to sort of focus a bit more on offering that continuity. And if we can explain to patients why it's a good thing to not just go for the soonest available doctor, but perhaps if it's not an urgent problem, hold on and wait for the doctor that they saw last if they got on well with them. That would help us and, and explain to our receptionists sort of using algorithms where they can they can sort of channel patients into seeing the same person again. There are lots of methods where we can make this work. And it also talks about making it a national priority by providing more funding and support for practices to make sort of relationship-based care central to everything they do. How would you see that working? What kind of support could governments or NHS England in England, what could they kind of do to help practices deliver continuity of care? I think we have to move away from access being the be all and end all. Now, Mm. there's no question if, for instance, you've got a, a child, they've got a sore throat, we're in the middle of the Christmas sort of crisis with group A strep, that child needs to be seen that day, you know, no no messing about there. But for an awful lot of things, particularly people who've got chronic illness, you know, they're, they're having reviews for, for already diagnosed conditions, those are going to be better managed by the same you know, COPD nurse that you saw last time or the same doctor who helped you and understood the sort of first presentation of your depression. You don't have to go back over everything again. So if we can sort of access is important for acute emergency problems, but it's not important for everything else. The other thing that's quite important now, I suppose, is, is, is we're not just talking about GPs anymore, are we? I mean, general practice now is very much a multidisciplinary team effort because there just aren't enough GPs. So how Do you make relationship-based care work in in that context? I think that's a really important message because not only are we... We're not GPs now, we're multidisciplinary teams with fantastic nursing colleagues, pharmacy colleagues, lots of people have paramedics. They're all equally important. But also the old fashioned model where, you know, when I started, I was full time, my partner was full time. We were both there every day so we could be called upon. Um, 
most GPs aren't working every single day now. So we have to make this work for teams. So, you know, a good example is if I've got a patient who's who's dying, patient on the end of life care pathway. So say I go and visit them on Monday and then on the Tuesday when I'm I'm working for the RCGP, our St. David's nurse, like a Macmillan nurse, goes goes to see them and then the district nurse visits on Wednesday. And all of us are talking every week and sharing information and any worries about that patient. And the patient and their family recognizes that we're all talking to each other. So if they talk to the St. David's nurse, that information's coming back to Dr. Christmas, who, who they want to, to know about it. They completely trust that in the same way that they'd just trust if, if it was just me visiting. And to be perfectly frank, if you've got that level of expertise, you know, the district nurse will know all sorts of things that I wouldn't know, the St. David's nurse just as much more. More, they're actually getting a better job from us as a team than just from one GP. So it's actually upping the quality of the care we're offering, but still maintaining that really important continuity. One of the things that people do worry about, and this comes up a lot, is we're, obviously we're facing a massive GP shortage. We talked there about teams, but general practice as a whole is under massive pressure. So are there any steps practices could take, like practical steps to sort of help make continuity a reality in the current climate? Or is it is it just quite difficult for some people to do it? I can't deny it's quite difficult for some people to do it. I think if you look big picture and over a longer time period, then if you've got continuity of care in place, it will actually reduce your workload because you won't have so many presentations. The the patient is more likely to feel listened to and feel that they've got a, a, a solution and a plan that they trust um, rather than keep presenting with the same problem because they just don't feel that they've they've got the answer they want. I think that's all really important and I'm, I'm going to continue to fight for it. But I can't deny, you know, when, when you've got sort of 100 patients that need to be seen in that day and, and you've got a finite number of healthcare professionals to see them, it's very difficult. And I'm definitely not belittling that while I, I talk about the importance of continuity. It's all a bit of a balancing act. Wales, like all parts of the UK, was really struggling with recruitment and retention of GPs. What sort of discussions have you been having with the Welsh government about this? Anything happening in Wales that's making a difference to this issue? Yeah, I mean, we're talking to Welsh government. They, they really do know this is a problem. Um, rural areas in Wales, North Wales, West Wales, the most beautiful areas, but very difficult to get doctors out there. We've got a retainee scheme. It's a really good scheme. It, it gives doctors involved educational support, not quite the same level of responsibility as, as a salaried doctor on their own, but it's incredibly underutilized at the moment. So, so we're trying to push that as a, as a great option for people who need a bit more support or people who have been, for instance, in partnership, really experienced doctors who want to sort of step back a bit and, and have less burden but keep in clinical practice or a whole variety of, of opportunities in between where that works well. Welsh Government offers golden hellos to people to go and work in under doctors areas. And I think that's helpful, but it's not actually all about the money at all. It's, it's about if you go to an under doctored area, 
then you're nervous that you're going to be suddenly responsible for twice as many patients as, as you feel safe and confident doing. So the more challenging an area becomes, the less likely it is to recruit and you get this sort of terrible spiral of difficulty. Another thing that we're looking at that's really important, more UK-wide really, but it does affect us particularly in Wales, is the need for our international medical graduates who perhaps have trained and qualified in Wales to be offered visas. Now, in England, you can get a sort of, you often have bigger surgeries that are more confident to offer visas to, to these doctors to stay on. Whereas you imagine tiny little practice up in North Wales, they want to keep their doctor, but they're a bit nervous about the, the commitment, about the cost involved. They don't really know how to go about doing it. And we've seen lots of fantastic trainees just hop across the border and start working in, in English practices because they can get the visas. Whereas what we need in Wales is, is a sort of overarching umbrella organisation to take that on. And that could be our college or it could be Health Education and Improvement Wales. It doesn't really matter. But it feels very unfair for these international medical graduates to have to stay in one small practice. You know, when I started, I worked in probably about 12 different practices before I found the one that I wanted to settle in because different people work in different ways. If I was stuck in one, there's a real risk that international medical graduates could be taken advantage of and not be able to move to a different practice where they're more appreciated because they'd have to go through the whole visa problem again. So it's, it's unfair and, and we really do want to get a solution for that. One of the things that has happened in Wales, actually, is that the government has published a workforce plan. Do you think that will make a difference? Let's hope so. Um, I mean, <laughs> they're talking about um, 11.6% increased funding for training places, 4.8% increase for core GP training. Now, that's really good news. Of course, we're limited a bit by more trainees, more GP trainees. They need to have really good positive experiences in primary care. For them to have really good positive experiences in primary care, we need the space to allow them to learn. You know, there's no point in me having a medical student who just sits next to me all day. I need them to have a room, decent consulting room, where they can spend an hour with a patient, taking a history, finding out about them, and then present it back to me. So there's no point having the training places without the capacity to train them. And, and that's another message that I'm pushing really hard with Welsh Government to say, it's essential that we sort of increase the capacity of our surgery buildings to go along with the increased capacity for medical students and GP trainees. We've got in the workforce plan after the pandemic, the Welsh Government's going to reinstate the Royal College of GPs Leadership Programme, which is a, just a fantastic nine months where you're offered peer support, mentoring, lots and lots of challenging stuff. You know, the people who come out of that often go on and take on, as well as being GPs, they take on sort of leadership roles and, and bring everyone else along behind them. So I think that's really exciting. And I'm looking forward to, to that starting up again later on this year. And it does mention the, the visas for international medical graduates, which I've said before is absolutely key to fairness and making things work better. So there's good stuff in it. Let's just hope it, it all happens. You've talked a little bit about retention as well. There's two sides of this, isn't there? There's the recruitment, getting new people in, but there's also almost bigger piece of work. And the thing that would make more of a difference more quickly is getting people to stay and not retire early or not cut back their sessions. You talked about that the retention scheme, but is there anything else you think could happen to help improve retention? 
you know, again, going back to my own practice, I think it's about accepting we have to be flexible. So I, I had a brilliant salaried doctor um, and and she's single mum and she can only work term times. And I was thinking, oh, gosh, this isn't really going to work. And then realized, actually, she's fantastic. Why shouldn't it work? I, I'm an independent contractor. I can do what I like sort of thing. So she has a contract and she's a partner now with a term time only contract. So she doesn't work the school holidays. She's able to be a fantastic mum to her kids. But we get all of those skills and, and you know, she's a great clinician, but also she's, she's a great person for thinking about ideas and support. And, you know, it would have been a colossal loss for us to, to not have had her. So that flexibility actually gave us great benefits. Another colleague I knew, he, he'd been a partner for years, retired, and he really retired because he was just fed up with the sort of stress of managing the staff, the stress of sort of carrying the can when locums didn't turn up, you know, all of the pressures. But he actually still loved being a GP, but he didn't want to be a locum sort of saddled with huge numbers of patients and lots of work and feeling exhausted at the end of it. So he's set up that he will locum and see 12 patients in a morning, not do anything else. He doesn't earn as much as a locum doing everything. He loves what he's doing and the practices that he's working at gains 12 patients being seen by an absolutely exemplary doctor who does a really good job. Compare those 12 patients, which isn't quite what you'd want from or you'd expect from the original model, but actually those 12 patients get a really good job done, we are overall significantly better off than if he'd retired and wasn't doing anything. So it's about thinking, okay, you don't want to do that. What would you be prepared to do? Let's give you a role doing that. Keeping people who are ready to retire, getting them back in as mentors to do GP training, to come in and help us with clinical governance or quality improvement work. You know, they've got enormous skills. It's a terrible waste to see them all disappear if, if we could give them a role in some way. I think that would, that would be really helpful. Sounds like you are really passionate about being a partner. You've been a partner for quite a long time and it seems like that's really important to you. But, you know, the partnership model has come under quite a bit of scrutiny in England over the past year or so, first from former health secretary and, and now from the Labour Party. I mean, it's clear in, in England that less and less GPs actually want to be partners now. We've been looking at some of the statistics on that on GP Online over the last few years. Is that the same true in Wales? Does Wales still struggle to get partners? I think it is difficult I think the trouble is when the partnership model is flourishing, everybody would love to be a partner and it's great to be a partner. I've had a couple of times, as I say, of last person standing and it wasn't much fun being a partner at that point at all. But if you've got lots of partners and it feels safe, then that ability to innovate, to, to sort of make a decision on Monday, put it into practice on Wednesday, decide the following Monday whether it's working or whether you need to tweak it, that is magic really. Or equally, you know, I'm saying, well, no, my kids are running in a cross-country race that, that afternoon. Do you mind if I, I if I go and watch and then I'll come back and do a later surgery? You know, I don't really have to ask anyone else as long as my partners are happy. And generally, if your partners are all working hard, you tend to just say yes, because that makes everything better, really. A study that we've done recently shows that 30% of, of GPs think it's unlikely they will become a partner, which sounds not so good. But 
then 43% thought that in the next five years, they would like to be. And that's hugely more likely than any of the other options. I think it was three times more likely than the next most popular option, which I'm afraid was, I think I'd, I'll be leaving general practice, which <laughs> I try not to think about that too much. And it, and it was seven times more popular than I'd like to be a salaried GP in a managed practice. You know, that is probably the, the least desired option for people. So I think if we can make partnership work, then partnership is a, is a brilliant model. But, you know, at the college, we support every every sort of GP, you know, salaried GPs, out-of-hours GPs, all the different varied roles that GPs are involved in. Partnership, I think, is is a great way to have very good job satisfaction when it's working well. But you probably, if you're thinking of partnership, you want to think of it not in the old-fashioned, got to do eight or nine sessions, got to, you know, absolutely commit to that and nothing else. I think that's probably a less successful model. If you're a sort of four to six session partner, plus time doing something else, and that time doing something else can be, you know, watercolor painting or or running marathons or being a a mum or a dad. It doesn't have to be a sort of another GP in another role kind of thing. There's there's lots of options. One of the other things I just wanted to ask you about is, is, you know, Wales, like other parts of the country, has obviously experienced real pressure on emergency care services over the past couple of months. How has that been affecting GPs in Wales? It has been really, really tough. Obviously, you only admit a patient when you have to admit a patient, but there's an even sort of stronger level of does this person really have to go and, you know, subject themselves to to potentially 12 hours sat on a hard chair. And that is absolutely no fault of the emergency departments at all. You know, everybody's trying their absolute best. But increasingly, we're having patients that are refusing to go into hospital. You know, you know, they desperately need to be in hospital. And they're just, well, now I heard about my neighbour, Bill, who (laughs) had this terrible experience. And they're very, very reluctant to. I mean, on more than one occasion, I get to work, I drop my kids off early for the school bus, I get to work at half seven. And I drive into the car park and there's a patient waiting in the car park and bounces out of the car for me to see their their spouse who's who's been in the emergency department overnight given up on it feels terrible comes back to the surgery to see to see me quite often they do need to be in in hospital you know I've quite often had to turn them around and send them back in again which is a terrible thing hospitals are probably discharging patients a bit earlier. Um, So that's increasing our need for home visits, which uh, if you you see a patient every 10 minutes, but a home visit takes you an hour, you can see the logistics of that are very difficult when you're trying to see as many people as you can. Lots more urgent appointments for patients who really should be in hospital, but aren't in hospital and are deteriorating and they have to be seen. And and failed discharges are, are increasingly common, you know, where you just have to persuade people they really need to go back in hospital again. And the other tricky thing is even when clinically we could look after people, in remote rural areas, there's often not the the social care support. You know, so I can't, somebody's been approved for a three times a day or even a four times a day care package and there is absolutely not the carers to come and look after them or poor district nursing team is stretched sort of elastic thin um, and, and they the patient needs blood tests every couple of days. The only way we can manage people at home is if we've got the whole support with social care and nursing care in place for us to do the good job that's needed to be done. The cost of living crisis, obviously that 
is having a massive impact on people. How is it starting to affect GPs in, in Wales in particular? I don't think I've had a surgery since, I don't know, October, November, where somewhere in the middle of that list, somebody hasn't sort of alluded to the cost of living as part of the reason they've come to see me. Mental health presentations, people with stress, with with depression, you know, genuine clinical depression as a result of the pressures they're living with. I've, I've had people with suicidal ideation because they just can't see which way to turn. Lots of children with stresses and you can sort of see, you know, mum and dad are struggling and, and it has a has an impact on children. And and then physically as well, you know, we're seeing more exacerbations of COPD or people with asthma or, or worsening arthritic pain because people are unable to put the heating on and, and they're cold. And lots of people as well that you'd never expect using the local food banks. And I'm explaining how to go about that. You know, these are these are working families who cannot pay the bills, can't look after their families. And so much shame tied up with all of that as well, which is, is heartbreaking. You know, there's there's nothing to be ashamed about. They are trying so hard, but there's a massive burden of, of guilt and worry that, that people are are carrying. And that has an impact on their physical health as well as on their, their emotional health. Do you think it's kind of adding to problems around sort of health disparities and health inequalities as well? Unquestionably. The more the pressure on society, the, the wider the health inequalities we see. Um, and and you see that with with doctors working in in more deprived areas, you know they're finding it harder to recruit. We we know statistically, doctors in deprived areas will see patients with far more complex health problems, but they spend shorter periods per consultation, um, you know, because they've got less time to spend with them. And and people in those environments often have lower expectations. You know, it just all feels so wrong. We we've got a. Deep End project that started back in the autumn that the RCGP is, is is running in Wales. And I'm really hoping that getting the, the practices in those Deep End environments together and talking will help those patients a little bit. Is that relatively new that there's not really a history of, of those sort of practices working together to sort of tackle some of those issues in, in Wales? That's new in Wales, yeah, and and much needed, which seems a bit crazy when Julian Tudor Hartz came from Wales. And tragically, his practice is still the most deprived practice in Wales, which just feels feels it deserves to have been lifted out of that that sort of tricky spot, doesn't it? But yeah, Wales is 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 the heart of of recognising the importance of health inequalities. But yeah, hopefully this this will make a difference. As chair of the RCGP in Wales, what what would you say some of the college's kind of key priorities there are then over the next couple of years? I guess quite a lot of what we've talked about are what I'm focusing on. You know, relationship-based care, I, I really understand the benefits of that. And, and, you know, that's in terms of health prevention, this getting upstream so that we can try and tackle problems at source before they become problems. It's all part of that. The prudent health care that we talk about in Wales, you know, doing what's needed for the people who need it most. My own chair priority is all about safeguarding. That That's sort of my, my area of special interest. And I've established a safeguarding peer support group in Monmouthshire. Um, that's been going, we're into our fifth year now, really well attended. We all feel it makes us practice more curiously. We're better at picking up safeguarding related problems. And we've got five or six other cluster groups across Wales. And my, my my mission really is to have have a group accessible for every GP in Wales. So I'm, I'm pushing on with that. 
I've just written with um, Dame Claire Gerarda, the president of the RCGP, a paper about the importance of attending schools, huge increase in, in school absence since the pandemic. And that has a big, big impact on inequalities in society. Again, it's the children from the most deprived areas that are least likely to be in school. And of course, education is our way of lifting people out of poverty. So the paper's all describing the GP's role in in sort of supporting children and families back into school. Our deep end work, which I've just been talking about, that's really important. I'm working with a group on ambulance delays, which is absolutely terrible in Wales, and looking at ways that GPs specifically can mitigate their risk of this because I've got colleagues who are putting children in their cars and driving them to hospital because there's there's no ambulance. They're, they're not even insured. Their car isn't even insured if they're doing that, let alone the medical legal risk. And finally, I'm looking at an education program for GPs to take on supporting patients with with trans health issues. So that I think is is a, a sort of, I, I've got a patient who waited two or three years, I think, to be seen by the gender identity clinic in Cardiff. They finally were seen and now they've, they've got another year to wait before they can start being prescribed medication. The waits are huge. So if we can support our GP population to have a, a special interest role that brings them sort of a, a bit of relief from from the day job um, and also supports that vulnerable group of patients, then that, that feels a positive thing as well. So I think that's my six things for the next two years. But there's always new things popping up that, that are important. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Emma. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Rowena for taking the time to talk to me. I'm back next week for our regular news review. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do think about rating us or leaving a review. And don't forget, you can access the latest news about primary care and a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 